As we've seen so far in our study, the book of Jonah is a very, very rich, deep, profound book. It has so much to speak to our souls, so much truth to speak to us. This morning, I want us to notice the glory of God truly demonstrated. It just unfolds, it's unfurled, it's revealed to us in a way that is just absolutely profound. In the first chapter, we had seen that God was gracious in His work through Jonah. Despite His disobedience, despite His rebellion, God still received glory in the way that He took Jonah, a man who would not go where He was told to go, and still brought about salvation for the sailors on that ship. In the second chapter, we saw the transformation of Jonah, how God was able to take him and move him from a place of rebellion And in that, we see the glory of God in the way that He transforms us and changes us and uses superintended methods of sovereignty to graciously guide us. We saw the sovereign uh, glory of God on display in the affliction of Jonah. But today, I I believe as we go through these last two chapters, and it will be a fast way to go through them, that really the thing we need to notice is the, the glory of God itself. As I've said every study that we've come together, the real key verse to this passage of Scripture is found in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation is from the Lord. It was the key message that needed to be driven to the heart of Jonah. It's the message that we need. It's the message that we found throughout the Scripture. If we were to simplify the entire message of the Scripture, if we were to condense it all into one sentence, it would be this. Salvation is from the Lord. The entire purpose of the Scripture was to reveal to us salvation is from the Lord. It was to drive us to Him from sin, to be restored and reconciled to Him. The wonderful and powerful thing about the Gospel, which itself only means good news, is that God did not leave us in our desperate condition of sin, but has instead used sin for good. And in that, brought glory to Himself. It's profound and we see it so richly in these last two chapters. On September 23, 1857, at exactly 12 noon, a tall middle-aged man, former businessman named Jeremiah Lanfer, climbed the creaking stairs of the third story of an old church building in the heart of lower New York City. It was a church that was experiencing decline. Uh, it was nearing its demise, and the elders of the church had commissioned Stafford on a very uh, small stipend to go and to try to bring about rejuvenating work in the church. Everything he tried failed. He knocked on doors and nobody would come to the church. He tried to go and provide food. Nothing seemed to bring anyone to the church. Finally, he thought, perhaps we should pray. And so he entered into this empty room. He pulled out his pocket watch and sat down and saw that it was exactly 12 o'clock. And the sign outside the door said, Prayer meeting from 12 to 1 o'clock. Stop by 5, 10, 20 minutes or the whole hour, as much time as you can, uh, you can give us. Well, by 12.30, it looked as though no one was going to come. And he was sitting there, a solitary waiter, wondering, was this just another failure? Well, he waited 10, wars, 10 minutes more. What was there to lose? And at 12.40, he heard steps on the stairs. One man came in, and then another, and then another, until finally there were six all sitting together. And after a few minutes of prayer, the meeting was dismissed, and there was the decision that another meeting should be held the following Wednesday. That small meeting was in no way extraordinary. Uh, There was absolutely no outpouring of the Spirit of God. Lanthier had no way of knowing that this prayer meeting was the beginning of a great national revival, which would sweep an estimated one million persons into the kingdom of God. It was small, inconsequential. How was he to know that just a few weeks later the nation would be struck by one of the greatest financial panics of that day? Banks were closed, men were thrown out of work, families were going hungry. And in this crash, the people had nothing but to do but pray. Surely this meeting, which began to be known as the Fulton Street Prayer Meeting, was now being taken over 
They couldn't fit in the small building at the, or the small room at the top of the church building. They had to have the entire sanctuary, and soon they were outstripping that space. There were 3,000 lawyers, physicians, merchants, clerks, bankers, brokers, manufacturers, mechanics, porters, messenger boys. All of them came five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, or the whole hour to pray. It seemed that the Fulton Street prayer meeting had touched a nerve, and now within six months, there were 10,000 businessmen out of a population of 800,000 gathering daily in New York City for prayer. And by January 1858, it was a regular top-of-the-newspaper refrain, the progress of the revival. There were remarkable cases of awakening, and they were detailed in the paper every day. Aren't you encouraged when you hear stories like that? It just stirs our hearts. We long to see people changed, transformed, conformed to the image of God. We pray for our family, our neighbors, our nation, that it would return to Jesus. In this example of determined prayer, mundane means of just getting together and putting together a few chairs. It seemed so small, and yet it was so profound in the change it brought to a country. And in fact, it touched even the shores of, of the United Kingdom and Europe itself. What was the cause of this work, this demonstration? Was it Lanfear's prayers? No. It was the work of the Spirit that's, that empowered those prayers. It was the proof that salvation is from the Lord. It was God working to convict these men to pray and convicting many more to repent. In Jonah 3-4, to we see that God delights in the salvation of Nineveh. And this delight is profoundly contrasted with the disdain that Jonah experiences. He sees Nineveh return to the Lord, and rather than being thankful as we were when we heard the story of Lamphere, he ridicules God, he's dismayed, he is angry with God to the point of wishing he were dead. How does a man get to that position? Well, let's read together Jonah chapter 3 and 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which was in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent with, and withdraw his burning anger, so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would do upon them. And He did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have a good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city, and he sat to the east of it. There he made a shelter for himself, and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. And so the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah, to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm. And when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, 
God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, Death is better than life to me. Then God said to Jonah, Do you you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have a good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You have compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? Let's pray. Father, this is a profound passage of Scripture, and there's so much here for us to see. Lord, I pray that we would be enriched by it. I pray that we would be encouraged by it. I pray that we would be convicted by it. And I pray that we would come into Christ's conformity through hearing it. Amen. Well, this morning, if you have a bulletin, there is an outline inside of the, inside of the bulletin on the, uh, the right page here. And there we see the Scripture confronts us with sin's power in a way that is so clarifying it leaves no doubt of man's wretchedness or God's holiness. Let me say that again. Scripture confronts us with sin's power in a way that is so clarifying it leaves no doubt or, of man's wretchedness or God's holiness. God delighted in the salvation of Nineveh. God also delighted in the sanctification of His servant. And so in Jonah chapter 3 and 4, we see God accomplish both purposes in one event that he may receive all the glory. And one of the things that is profound about the mysteries of God's superintendence is the way that he can take something and has multiple uh, effects. Just as when Jonah was on that sea or, and was disobedient and there was a great storm that came upon him, it didn't only affect Jonah. It affected everyone around him. It affected the sailors on the ship. It affected the people on the dry land. It affected the other sailors on the the ocean that day. Well, here today, God is bringing this amazing, miraculous event, the salvation of an entire people who knew nothing about God, knew nothing about the law, and had done nothing good to deserve God's mercy. And while they are the beneficiaries of it, Jonah, who is hating it, also becomes a beneficiary. Because through this event, his heart is exposed. And God begins to teach him his heart, God's heart, for the lost. And for us, this is what I want us to really see. The way that as we go through this passage, we see the compassion and the patience and the mercy and the love of God. And how that is in dire, diametrical opposition to our natural tendencies, our natural heart. So let's look together at chapter 3 and see the glory of God in the salvation of Nineveh. We see that there was now the second call to Jonah. And God comes now and speaks to Jonah again. And, you know, the Lord had had brought about this tailor-made trial. He had brought a a wind and waves to crash over this uh, ocean carrier so that Jonah was unavoidably... The, the cause when they cast the lots and saw it was him who was at fault. And rather than at that moment repenting, Jonah refused and was thrown overboard and God prepared a fish to come and to, to pick him up and to carry him. And in, in, in that depth of the esophagus of the fish as he was being squeezed and crushed and experiencing the burning of the gastric juices of the fish and was going to the depths of the ocean and yet not dead, feeling the uh, seaweed wrapped around his face and his neck, choking him, wondering if he's in the pit of hell because he's in utter darkness, being tortured by this burning, the stench, the aroma, wondering if it's all over. He recognizes, it's been three days, maybe I'm not in hell. And he begins to pray. This, This second calling is... Is profound because you remember the first one, God said to him to, let's look at it, in verse 2, chapter 1, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Their wickedness has come up before me. Now he says, cry out against this city, the proclamation which I am going to tell you. The, the message is more specific. Jonah has been more prepared. Previously, Jonah 
he had been a prophet of prosperity to the northern kingdom. He had said things that were going to happen, and they did happen, and it brought blessings to Israel. But now to be more fit for this message that he needed to bring to a wretched people, God afflicted Jonah. In his rebellion, he taught Jonah who he really was and who God really is. He revealed to Jonah that his disposition and his heart was bigoted and hateful. And we think he he got it because now he's sent out and he goes. You notice that? He goes. He doesn't say, hey, what are you going to do now? I'm out of the fish. No, he learned his lesson. He goes to that great city. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It was one of the greatest cities of that era. It was a city that had been founded by Nimrod. Uh, you'll see that in, I believe, Genesis uh, 11. The, the city itself was over 60 miles across. The city walls, which were at the very uh, center of the pinnacle of the, the height of the power of the city where the, the castle or the, uh, where the king would have stayed, the city wall there was over eight miles wide. The, the city walls themselves were 100 feet tall, and they had over 1,500 towers, each of which was 200 feet, looking for enemies on the horizon. And the walls were so thick that they could fit three charioters riding abreast, that means side by side, around to make sure that they were fully fortified and ready for any attack that might happen. The population of this area of Nineveh was at least 120,000, as the scripture tells us in chapter 4, but it may have been as much as 600,000 if we account for women and children. And so this was an exceedingly fearful place to go. And as we already saw, the Ninevites were known for their acts of cruel wickedness. But Johnny, he goes... He begins to walk through the city, and he's only one day into the walk, crying out the message that God gave him. Five words in the Hebrew, just a few in the English. Very simple message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. One of the things that's really interesting is that the, one of the key gods that the Ninevites worshipped was the fish god. And you can imagine that Jonah walking through the city, smelling like fish, burned by the gastric juices of this great fish, and perhaps even some of the fishermen had seen him coming from the ocean, coming wretched out of the stomach of the fish, recognized this is the one who has conquered the greatest fish we've ever seen. They may have even thought that this was a prophet that was sent to slay their god. So there may have been some message going ahead. There's someone on the horizon that's coming. What's he going to say? So Jonah's walking through the city, and he's only one day into this walk, declaring, you had 40 days and you'll be overthrown. Does there sound like there's grace in that message? Does it sound like there's an opportunity for repentance? I don't hear it. But you know what's profound? Jonah is preaching God's message, the words God gave him to say, and whether this is the whole message or it's just an abridged version of it, he's just going through the city saying what God told him to say, and as he speaks doom and gloom, the Holy Spirit is translating to their hearts, repent. It's not too late. Clearly, the Lord had already been working on the people's hearts. Clearly, there was some awareness that they had that they were deserving of this doom. Because these words, they couldn't rattle a city. If I walk through Gainesville and I say that there is yet 40 days and Gainesville will be overthrown, if it's not empowered by the Holy Spirit to convict hearts, it will do nothing. The message and the messenger mean little, but they're absolutely, absolutely necessary for the word to go forth. You're familiar with Romans 10, 13 to 15. Who will call on the name of the Lord Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring tidings of good news. Jonah was commissioned, he was sent, he was empowered, and the message had its effect. The people heard, Repent. Repent, turn to the Lord. You notice in verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They didn't believe the message of Jonah. They believed in God. And so they called a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
The people had to be hungering for this message. Look at what the king says in verse 6. The, the message of repentance went all the way to the top. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne. He laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The king himself is cut to the quick. And not only that, he gets together the royal presses and he sets out a... Uh, a message for all of the people to hear. The the heralds of the king are outpacing Jonah because now they're going throughout the city and they're saying, by decree of the king in Nineveh and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, flock taste a thing and do not let them eat or drink. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which was in his hands. The king gets it. The message goes forth. He says, we're wicked. We're guilty. Our hands are covered in blood. Romans 1.18-20 tells us this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. For men suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. What does this teach us? Men are condemned, and they only have one of two options. One is to repent, but if no messenger comes, there's no hope. Or to harden themselves and to go on to greater and greater sin. And so in the graciousness of God, through, the, the, through just the means of, just pro, uh, of the grace of creation, creation itself declaring the glories of God, these men are convicted of their sin. The natural law of man decrees to them. They have killed, they have murdered, they have stolen, they have hated, they have committed adultery. They knew it was wrong. And then they hear a message, God will destroy you. And they say, I am the man. Man, just like when Nathan pointed at David, said, You are the man. When Jonah went out, they all to their heart said, I am the man, I am guilty. Again, that is the work of the Spirit, but it is done through the mouth of a man. It's amazing. Could, could God have done something different to save Nineveh? It would have been so much easier to send an angel. He could have just written in the clouds. He could have let a a copy of the Old Testament drop to the ground for them to read it. But that's not the way God saves people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. God chooses to use us. I don't know why. God chooses to use us. Brothers and sisters, when we don't go, when we don't preach the message of Christ, we, like Jonah, forestall the work of God in the hearts of others. We are His messengers. Think about it. A revival so drastic that even the king lays down his royal garments and lays down in ashes. I I genuinely believe we don't believe that could happen here. We don't pray as though it could happen here. But we should. Do you pray? Do you pray for our leaders? Do you pray for our country? Do you pray for your family? Do you pray for your children to be broken over sin and to truly give God the glory and to turn from their wicked ways and follow Him? This is what God did in Nineveh. God, He he saw their repentance. He relented of the destruction which He had said He would do to them. And he was pleased to do so. But Jonah, he was not pleased, was he? And, and we, we look at chapter 3 and we say, what a great climax. What a great end to the book. You know, if you or I are writing this book, we would have left chapter 4 off. But you know who wrote this book? God did, through the hand of Jonah. And that tells us a few things. One, it tells us that God is in the business of restoring people, even people like Jonah. And two, God gets all the glory in writing the story where He reveals to us how holy and kind He is and how wicked and wretched we are. This isn't a story about the glory of man. This isn't a story where Jonah gets any of the credit. Again, we, we, we would have left it at chapter 3. Man, the guy, he got it. He was restored. He went the right way for the rest of his days, happily ever after. It's not the story. 
No. Look at verse 1. It's right there. It's like there's not even a punctuation. It just goes right into it. God did not do it, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. I think when we look at this, we just don't understand how could he be angry. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a toddler not get what they want? Have you ever been to Disney and all the kids are just ramped up on sugar and coffee? They're not getting what they want and they're literally throwing themselves to the ground, kicking and screaming? This is what Jonah's acting like. He's acting like a child. And really what he's doing is he's like a toddler that didn't get what he wants. He is so angry that he's not getting what he wants, which is, do you know what he wants? He wants to see Nineveh destroyed. As hard it is as that is to believe, that is what he wants. He wants to see Nineveh destroyed. And so he's angry that he's not getting what he wants. But you know, this is the thing that's happening right now. The, the city of, of Nineveh was a demonic bastion of worship. It, it, false worship. Uh, they, they were under the power of Satan and they were used mightily to afflict many throughout the area. Even as far as Israel Israel experienced and would in a hundred years experience the might of the Assyrians when they came down and destroyed northern Israel. The devil had lost that day, didn't he? But he still had a foothold in the heart of Jonah. And this is one of those profound things about the wisdom of God. We've already seen God use sin to bring about a transformation of Jonah and salvation of the sailors on the ship. And here, what God is going to do is He's going to continue to work in the heart of Jonah. And just like a clam that's kind of closed up and it needs to be steamed a little bit longer before you can get it open, God is going to open up to Jonah the depths of his heart and reveal to him how great his hatred really is. Satan knows it's there. He knows that Jonah is bigoted and hateful and has no desire to see Nineveh saved. And so he goes to Jonah and pricks him there. It kind of reminds me of how on the day when Elijah struck down 300 of the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, he was mighty in the Lord that day, and yet when Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you, he fled for his life. I mean, what happened? You just struck down 300 men in the might of the Lord, and everyone who had been worshiping Baal was now saying with you, Yahweh, Yahweh, He is the Lord. His greatest victory was followed by His greatest defeat. In one day, the same things happened here with Jonah. What's another example? Well, Peter. We already saw last time that Peter, he had to be restored. And after the Lord brought him back to restoration, and Peter went out and preached at Pentecost, and there were thousands saved, what happened to Peter later? He was still a sinner. He had to be rebuked by Paul face to face because Peter was eating uh, with the Gentiles in private. But when any of the Judaizers came along, he acted like a Jew again. And so he had to be opposed to his face. We look at chapter 4 and we kind of think, why did he leave this in this book? It would have been easier to take it out. But friends, that would mean that we wouldn't have hope for our story of transformation. God is in the business of not only saving people, but in conforming them to the image of Christ. And that's what He's doing right now in the heart of Jonah. And, and the way that He does this is through a series of questions and object lessons that will be used to reveal to Jonah the madness of his self-will. Think about the way Jonah goes and he speaks to God. He, he looks to God and he says to him, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents from calamity. It's like he's spitting it out of his mouth. It's like these precious words are evil in his heart right now. That's how far he's removed from the goodness of God. And brothers and sisters, we do the same thing. This is the madness of self-will. This is what sin does when it darkens our hearts. We're only thinking about ourselves and we can't see the effect on others. It's what Jonah is doing right now. He received compassion for himself. He wanted God to abate from his anger. He wanted God to relent from his destruction. He wanted his loving kindness to be experienced in his own life. He even wanted it for northern Israel. But for the Gentiles, no. But you know, there is something different about Jonah. Did you notice it? 
He's praying. That's something. See, last time, he didn't even pray. He just fled from the presence of the Lord. But now, he is praying. One of the reasons why this would have been so hard for Jonah, it would have been so hard for Jonah to see the repentance of Nineveh was because the very purpose that God had in sending Jonah was twofold. One was to show that there was no deficiency in the message but in those who received it, and to prove that salvation is for all people. See, Jonah, just like many of those in the days of Christ, had forgotten that the salvation that God granted, the law that He had given them, was not just for Israel. He had set aside Abraham to be a man called after his purpose in order that Abraham would be a demonstration to the nations of the glory of God. It would be through Abraham that all the nations would be blessed. Jonah, he, just like the Jews in the days of Christ, were thinking, no, this is for us, not for others. But God, seeing that they were a stiff-necked people, goes around them, saves the most depraved enemy that they could think of, and shows them there was never a deficiency in the message it was always in the hearts of those who heard it. So John, Jonah, he, he attempted to forestall the will of God. How often are we like this? How often are we like this when we are selfish, when we are self-focused, when we don't have God's perspective, when our prayers are so self-focused we can't recognize why they're not answered? God had tailor-made a trial before sending this great fish, the wind, the wave, and now He's going to send a weed, a worm, and a wind to reveal to Jonah the depths of his own heart, the darkness that lies deep within him. Here's the first question that God asked him. Do you have a good reason to be angry? Well, Jonah, he doesn't answer, does he? Jonah went out from the city. He sat to the east of it and he made a shelter for himself. And he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. What's he doing? He is waiting to see if God's going to change his mind. Remember he had said, yet 40 days and then Nineveh will be overthrown. He's going out and he's like looking for fireworks, waiting to see if Sodom and Gomorrah will happen again. Maybe they didn't really mean the repentance. So he goes and creates a booth and he's waiting. And you know what's amazing? While he's out there and he's waiting, God does something. And the first object lesson, he brings comfort to Jonah despite his rebellion. He sends a weed to grow up overnight to cover him. Because, as you probably recall, when the Israelites would go out and fashion booths for the festival booths, one of the things they needed were palms in order to be able to give shade. So Jonah, he didn't have palms. He's in the desert. He's in a wilderness area. And God causes a weed to grow up over the top of this booth and give him comfort in one night. And he's exceedingly happy about it. He loves this comfort. He's not remembering the words he just spoken, that God is merciful and compassionate, showing loving kindness. Again, he loves it for himself. And what's interesting is in the Hebrew, the word that is uh, uh, used here is the castor oil plant. Well, what do we know about the castor oil plant? It has a lot of benefits. Uh, other than being a natural laxative, or if you're pregnant, looking to have a baby sooner, you're supposed to drink castor oil. Castor oil has been used to heal wounds and skin. It's a natural anti-inflammatory. It's great to moisturize a dry scalp. You maybe remember the scripture where it says, let a righteous man strike me. It is like a kindness. It is like oil to my head. The castor oil plant would have been the, the oil that they would be using to moisturize their dry heads on hot days. Remember, they, they didn't have a conditioner, Right? and they're in a dry environment. So you would use oil to anoint your head so it wouldn't dry out. Another thing that's interesting is that castor oil was used to light lamps. And so here's Jonah. He is sitting in darkness being comforted by a plant that's meant to bring light and comfort. But what else do we know about the castor oil plant? The covering of the beans that come from it, if you don't prepare it correctly, is poisonous. What's inside of... Uh, this bean is nourishment and excellent. What's outside of it is dangerous. What's going on in Jonah's heart? 
on the outside he looks like a righteous guy. He just preached the best sermon you ever saw and a whole city was saved. But what's inside of his heart is venom and poison. It's an interesting word picture that the Lord uses there. Jonah desired the destruction of Nineveh, but he couldn't see his own rebellious heart. He willingly received compassion, but he had none for the city. And so we see now that God is in our comfort. That's an interesting thing to think about. But he's also, in the second lesson that he gives to Jonah, he's also in our discomfort. We can never forget that. Verse 7, God appointed a worm, and when the dawn came the next day, it attacked the plant and it withered. Now, why did God send a worm? Well, why did He send a weed? (laughs) Why did He give Him compassion? To teach Him something about God. And so, just as this weed grew miraculously and certainly faster than was capable of doing in one day, there is a worm sent to destroy this plant, and in one day, it's, it's the next day, it's ruined. God is now sending to Jonah this great wind. And we see that God uses in this third object lesson, affliction. He uses affliction to reveal to us our hearts. So how do we see God in our discomfort? Well, we have to remember Hosea 2.14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. God will take us from a place of comfort and take us into dark places so that He can break the bones that are in rebellion to Him so that He can then heal us and speak tenderly to us and then we'll be more effectively used by Him. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And so in this discomfort, in this affliction, Jonah sees the the weed that he loved die, and now God sends a a wind, an east wind that's a scorching wind to blow down upon him. And it's so funny. He begs with all of his soul to die. He says, death is better than life to me. We see, it would seem like he's on a suicide watch here. He's been, in this chapter, he'll say three times that he wishes he were dead, that he were back in the belly of the fish. And we know that he got in the belly of the fish because he thought it's better to die than to obey God. So God's bringing him back to that moment. And while Jonah is longing for the lie of some past that would get him away from the embarrassment of seeing so many turn to the Lord of these wicked Gentiles... God is using this to reveal to him the madness of his self-will. I mean, think about it. The Scripture tells us he begs that he would die. And this is no flippant prayer. He really means what he's saying. He is pleading for his death. That's how, how selfish he is. That's how blind he is. You know, pride is like a cataract to our soul. It, it doesn't allow us to see the vastness of God's goodness. It makes us narrow-minded in his, in his pride. Jonah is pleading for death and the death of Nineveh, waiting for their death, not wanting to see his mercy for any except himself and for his people. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, In affliction, you discover who God is and who you really are. That's what God is doing. He is shucking out the shell of bitterness in his heart. He is holding it up to the light and he's saying to Jonah, do you see what's in you? Do you see the insanity of your disobedience? Do you see how disturbing your hatred is? Have you forgotten my kindness to you? Have you forgotten my purposes in saving many through this one message? Salvation is from me. It's for all. It's not just for you. It's not just for Israel. In church, it's not just for us. And so now God asks one last question. And in this question, this is the climax of the book, guys. It's the pinnacle, but it's so easy to miss it. It's so easy to miss it. But at this climax, God shows us His heart. The Lord said in verses 10 and 11, The Lord said to Jonah, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Now listen, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, 
in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as many as well as many animals. That's it. And that, that, that's the part we miss. And, and many cattle? And many animals? What? What, a, what kind of ending is that? It, it, it's the only book in the Bible that ends with a question. Did you know that? It, it, and it doesn't have an answer. And I, I think that the reason that is is because Jonah wrote this and he's kind of like, I get it. Microphone drop. There's nothing left to be said. He got me. He revealed where my heart really is. And He has demonstrated to me who He really is and the depth of His love. Did, God, did Jonah cause this plant to grow? Of course not. But Jonah, he, he loved the plant, but he couldn't see the demonstration, the, the, the parallel that it was to the people of Nineveh. And God is making it clear to him. God is teaching Jonah his heart toward the lost. Why is God patient with the lost? Why is he long-suffering? Because th- this is his heart, Ezekiel eighteen thirty-two. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. This is the heart of God. Listen, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now listen, this was, this propitiation, this sacrifice of Christ, this redemption by God, the fact that we were all in utter darkness with no hope, the purpose of this was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in the forbearance of God, that means the patience of God, the long-suffering of God, He passed over, He looked over, He dismissed, but He did not forget the sins previously committed. Why did He do this? To demonstrate, I say, to reveal to you and me, to show us His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what salvation is from the Lord means. If it were up to us, we would say, I sinned, I'm sorry. That's okay, you're good, let's go back to business as it was. But that's not the way it works. You sinned and you were forsaken into darkness. Think about it. God is merciful. It's raining right now. We get to live because it's raining right now. There's going to be crops watered. It rains on the just and the unjust. It's a demonstration right at this very moment of God's kindness to sinners and to saints. This is His preserving mercy it's a previent grace. It's for all, regardless of their love for God or their hatred of God, because He is demonstrating, He is holding on to sinners and saints so that there will come a moment where some who are sinners will be transformed and they will see God's grace to them in saving them and keeping them from experiencing the full torment of the despair they should have felt because of the rebellion. And instead, it's nailed to the cross. And we get to be with Christ. See, Jonah wanted this for himself, but he couldn't see it for others. But God is revealing to him, and not just to Jonah, to us, and not just to us, but to the Israelites, who, by the way, probably didn't like this book a lot, that this is for everyone. This gospel is effective for everyone. Salvation is from the Lord. It is God's idea. We could not merit. We could not invent it. We don't even think we need it. But God grants it to us if we will only turn and repent. In these object lessons, God reveals the deficiencies of Jonah's heart. He reveals how selfish he is. He's not only unmasked, his heart is unfurled, his bigotry is rebuked, and his heart is laid bare. You know the kind of heart we ought to have? And certainly not like Jonah's. Sadly, I think many of us are more like Jonah. But what kind of heart should we have? It's in Romans 9. It's the heart like Paul had. It's the heart like God has. It's the heart that Christ had when He laid aside all these glories that He had in heaven and laid them all down and suffered as a suffering servant. Paul, when he looked to his people, says this in Romans 9, 
Verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I would wish that I myself were accursed. Let me repeat that. I myself wish that I were accursed. That means I wish that I were to go to hell, damned, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israel's, Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Do you have a heart like that? I don't. That is the type of heart that God had. It's the type of heart Christ had. It's the type of heart that God is trying to motivate and drive into Jonah. Jonah was caught between the vice of his own self-will on the one hand and the strong hand of God on the other. And the more that Jonah pushed, the more God pressed. The more God pressed and revealed who he really was. At the heart of the gospel is the glory of God and the salvation and sanctification of saints. We've seen now through this book the way that God transformed Jonah, and in doing so, he put on display his glory every step of the way. He put his glory on display in the disobedience of Jonah. He put his glory on display in the restoration of Jonah. He put his glory on display in the salvation of Nineveh. He put his glory on display in the sanctification of Jonah and teaches us this resounding truth. Salvation is from the Lord. It is of the Lord. It is to the Lord. And it is for us to bring Him great glory. You know, God... He, he could have been satisfied with the work that he had done in Jonah in the disobedience, being able to bring out his good purposes. We know, we say it often, well, God used Balaam's ass, right? He could use me. But that does not satisfy God. He does not want disobedient servants. He does not want half-hearted servants. He wants our whole heart transformed and conformed to the will of God so that we would look like Christ because that is the greatest demonstration of His glory. Sinners made saints. Sons of Satan made sons of God. That is the glory of God on display. Salvation is granted to all who call on the name of the Lord. If you have not called on His name, today is the day. Call on Him. If you are walking imperfectly, which if you are walking perfectly, please raise your hand. If you are walking imperfectly, take heart. Jonah 4 ends abruptly because the story has to continue. God is going to continue to work on His servant. He's continuing to work on you. He's continuing to work on me until we see Him face to face. But that does not mean that we should have a flippant aspect or, or, or approach. Shall we send that grace may abound? May it never be. No, we press on. We press on to look more like Christ. Jesus has saved us. He is sanctifying us. He is renewing us so that we would be vessels of mercy, trophies of His grace, and sources of triumph in the face of Satan's wiles. This is what God is doing in us. You know, the Fulton City Revival that I began our introduction with to this book, or this chapter, took place just prior to the Civil War. Unfortunately, it was not a revival that went deep enough to be able to stop that war from taking place. And unfortunately, there was a scourging that had to happen in our country where over 600,000 men were killed. Many more were wounded. And the face of our nation, its politics, its demographics were all irreparably changed. However, despite the horror of this war, there was a gracious continuation of revival that continued in the camps of the Confederates as well as the, the Yankees. God continued to bring and usher saints into heaven even as they went out and fought blood and died. He continued to do His gracious work. And I believe it was something about this work that 
Lincoln, looking at this war, penned these profound words in his second inauguration speech and I think remind me so much of the way the king repented in dust and ashes in Jonah chapter 3. In his second inauguration, Lincoln closed by saying this, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said today, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This is how God changes us. This is how God may change our country. May we pray that it happens. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this study. Thank you for this book. It's always so profound, God, to be brought into the presence of getting just a glimpse of something of your heart for the lost having something of an understanding of your compassion toward us as we rebel so readily, so often. And at the same time, we're able to have exposed to us the, the rank darkness of our own hearts. Father, you know each one of us intimately. And you know whether we are walking in righteousness and being ones who are searching out the Scripture and testing ourselves that we'd be approved as worthy workmen before you. And you are also aware that there is, even of those who are walking faithfully, there are still so many areas and pockets of sin and darkness in our hearts that we either know about and won't give up to you, or we are totally unaware of. And we have to pray as the psalmist does, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and reveal to me any hidden faults, and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, we, we need that extended grace to continue to be transformed in the image and the likeness of Jesus. And yet the truth of the matter is, for many of us, if it is not through affliction, if it is not through scourging, if it is not through difficulty, we just don't learn. We, we just remain in our own rotten heart in the same condition, the same way, wicked. Going through seasons of abounding and then seasons of just backsliding. Father, I pray that you would be working in the hearts of each one of us this morning, whether we are are exceedingly doing well, or we are backsliding, or even if we are totally outside of the confines of your mercy. I pray that you would be using these words in this story of divine grace and mercy and transformation and salvation and sanctification, that you'd be using it to work in us a great work of grace that we would become those trophies of grace that are a demonstration of the wisdom of God and His justness upholding the law and His justice satisfying it through His Son Christ. We've been given it all. We've been given everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. We have the Scripture. We have the Spirit. If we are in You, if we are trusting in You, so may we be transformed through the renewing of our minds. We pray. Amen.